This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the ways that how we design and fund our towns, cities, and housing impacts the quality of life for everyone in society. Clips today come from Ideas, The David Pakman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, Jacobin Radio, and starting with a TED Talk from architect Janie Gang. I'm a relationship builder. When you think of a relationship builder, don't you just automatically think architect? <laughs> Probably not. That's because most people think architects design buildings and cities, but what we really design are relationships. Because cities are about people. They're places where people come together for all kinds of exchange. And besides skylines, they're highly specific urban habitats with their own insects, plants, and animals, and even their own weather. But today, urban habitats are out of balance. Climate change, together with political and economic troubles, are having an impact. They're adding up and stressing out cities and us, the people who live in them. For me, the field of ecology has provided important insight because ecologists don't just look at individual species on their own. They look at the relationships between living things and their environment. They look at how all the diverse parts of the ecosystem are interconnected, and it's actually this balance, this web of life that sustains life. My team and I have been applying insights from ecology to architecture to see how physical space can help build stronger relationships. The projects I'm going to show you today use the idea of building relationships as the key driver for design. Here's an example of what I mean. Recently, we were asked to design a center for social justice leadership called the Arcus Center. They asked us for a building that could break down traditional barriers between different groups and in doing so, create possibilities for meaningful conversations around social justice. The students wanted a place for cultural exchange. They thought a place for preparing food together could do that. And they wanted to be welcoming to the outside community. They thought a fireplace could draw people in and help start conversations. And everybody wanted the work of social justice to be visible to the outside world. There really wasn't a precedent for this kind of space. So we looked around the globe and we found examples of community meeting houses. And community meeting houses are places where there's very specific relationships between people. Like this one in Mali, where the elders gather. The low roof keeps everybody seated and at equal eye level. It's very egalitarian. I mean, you can't stand up and take over the meeting. You'd actually bump your head. <laughs> in meeting houses... There's always a central space where you can sit around a circle and see each other. So we designed a space just like that right in the middle of the Arca Center, and we anchored it with a fireplace and a kitchen. It's pretty hard to get a kitchen and fireplace in a building like this with the building codes, but it was so important to the concept. We got it done. And now the central space worked for big social gatherings and a place to meet one-on-one for the very first time. It's almost like this three-way intersection that encourages bumping into people and starting a conversation. And now you can always pass the kitchen and see something going on. You can sit by the fireplace and share stories. You can study together in big groups or in small ones because the architecture sets up these opportunities. 
Even the construction is about building relationships. It's made of cordwood masonry, which is using logs the way that you would use bricks. It's super low-tech and easy to do, and anyone can do it, and that's the entire point. The act of making is a social activity. And it's good for the planet, too. The trees absorbed carbon when they were growing up, and they gave off oxygen. And now that carbon is trapped inside the walls, and it's not being released into the atmosphere. So that making the walls is equivalent to taking cars right off the road. We chose the building method because it connects people to each other and to the environment. But is it working? Is it creating relationships and nurturing them? How can we know? Well, more and more people are coming here for one, and as a result of the fireside chats and a full calendar of programming, people are applying for the Arcus Fellowships. In fact, uh, applications have increased tenfold for the Arcus Fellowship since the building opened. It's working. It's bringing people together. So I've shown how architecture can connect people on this kind of horizontal campus scale. But we wondered if social relationships could be scaled up, or rather upward, in tall buildings. Tall buildings don't necessarily lend themselves to being social buildings. They can seem isolating and inward. You might only see people in those awkward elevator rides. <laughs> But in several major cities, though, I've been designing tall buildings that are based on creating relationships between people. This is Aqua. It's a residential high-rise in Chicago aimed at young urban professionals and empty nesters, many of them new to the city. With over 700 apartments, we wanted to see if we could use architecture to help people get to know their neighbors, even when their homes are organized in the vertical dimension. So we invented a way to use balconies as the new social connectors. The shapes of the floor slabs vary slightly, and they transition as you go up the tower. And the result of this is that you can actually see people from your balcony. The balconies are misregistered. You can lean over your balcony and say, hey, just like you would across the backyard. And to make the balconies more comfortable for a longer period of time during the year, we studied the wind with digital simulations. So the effect of the balcony shapes breaks up the wind and confuses the wind and makes the balconies more comfortable and less windy. And now, just by being able to go outside on your balcony or on the third floor roof terrace, you can be connected to the outdoors, even when you're way above the ground plane. So the building acts to create community within the building and the city at the same time. It's working. And people are starting to meet each other on the building surface. And we've heard <laughs> they've even started getting together as couples. Um, but besides romantic relationships... The building has a positive social effect on the community, um, as evidenced by people starting groups together and starting big projects together, like this organic community garden on the building's roof terrace. So I've shown how tall buildings can be social connectors. But what about public architecture? How can we create better social cohesion in public buildings and civic spaces? And why is it important? Public architecture is just not as successful if it comes from the top down. About 15 years ago in Chicago, they started to replace old police stations. And they built this identical model all over the city. <laughs> and even though they had good intentions of treating all neighborhoods equally, the communities didn't feel invested in the process or feel a sense of ownership of these buildings. It was equality in the sense that everybody gets the same police station, but it wasn't equity in the sense that responding to each community's individual needs And equity is the key issue here. 
You know, in, in my field, um, there's a debate about whether architecture can even do anything to improve social relationships. But I believe that we need architecture and every tool in our toolkit to improve these relationships. And the U.S. policy reforms have been recommended to, in order to rebuild trust. But my team and I wondered if design and a more inclusive design process could help add something positive to this policy conversation. We asked ourselves simply, can design help rebuild trust? So we reached out to community members and police officers in North Lawndale. It's a neighborhood in Chicago where the police station is perceived as a scary fortress surrounded by a parking lot. In North Lawndale, people are afraid of police and of going anywhere near the police station, even to report a crime. So we organized this brainstorming session with both groups participating, and we came up with this whole new idea for the police station. It's called polis station, and polis is a Greek word that means a place with a sense of community. It's based on the idea that if you can increase opportunities for positive social interactions between police and community members, you can rebuild that relationship and activate the neighborhood at the same time. Instead of the police station as a scary fortress, you get highly active spaces on the public side of the station. Places that spark conversation, like a barbershop, a coffee shop, or sports courts as well. Both cops and kids said they love sports. These insights, they came directly from the community members and the police officers themselves. And as designers, our role was just to connect the dots and suggest the first step. So with the help of the city and the parks, we were able to raise funds and design and build a half court right on the police station parking lot. It's a start, but is it rebuilding trust? But people in North Lawndale say that kids are using the courts every day, and then they even organize tournaments like this one shown here. And once in a while, an officer joins in. Um, but now they even have basketballs inside the station that kids can borrow. And recently, they've asked us to expand the courts and build a park on the site. And parents report something astonishing. Before, there was fear of going anywhere near the station, and now they say there's a sense that the court is safer than other courts nearby and they prefer their kids to play here. So maybe in the future, on the public side of the station, you might be able to drop in for a haircut at the barbershop or reserve the community room for a birthday party or renew your driver's license or get money out of an ATM. It can be a place for neighbors to meet each other and to get to know the officers and vice versa. This is not a utopian fantasy. It's about how do you design to rebuild trust, trusting relationships. You know, every city has parks, libraries, schools, and other public buildings that have the potential to be reimagined as social connectors. But reimagining the buildings for the future is going to require engaging the people who live there. Engaging the public can be intimidating. Uh, and I've felt that too. But maybe that's because in architecture school, we don't really learn how to engage the public in the act of design. We're taught to defend our design against criticism. But I think that can change, too. So if we can focus the design mind on creating positive, reinforcing relationships in architecture and through architecture, I believe we can do much more than create individual buildings. We can reduce the stress and the polarization in our urban habitats. We can create relationships 
we can help study this planet we all share. See, architects really are relationship builders. Overhauling the way we work and earn incomes in our consumer capitalist societies is one thing. Displacing the car from its centrality in the life of our cities is quite another. Road infrastructure may be crumbling and costly to repair. Traffic congestion may be eroding economic productivity and commuters' quality of life. Cars may be major contributors to climate change and air pollution. But few things will cause legislative gridlock like proposing road tolls, expanded public transit, bike lanes, or anything else designed to take cars off the road and onto alternative forms of getting around. That didn't deter Janet Sadiq Khan during her tenure as Transportation Commissioner for New York City. She was responsible for an intricate public transit system, thousands of miles of streets and sidewalks, and millions of signs and traffic signals. Her job was to help more than 8.5 million people move as efficiently as possible from A to B and to turn New York into a more livable city. She did so by making it harder to drive and easier to do just about anything else. She is now the founding principal with Bloomberg Associates, founded by the former New York mayor who had hired her, this Michael Bloomberg, and she's the co-author of Street Fight, Handbook for an Urban Revolution. Here's some of my conversation with Janet Sadik Khan from the Sunday edition in May 2016. You call for an urban revolution. Mm-hmm. Why do we need a revolution? Well, our streets are really sick when you think about it. 33,000 people die on the streets of the United States every year. We've got chronic congestion. We've got lifeless streets. And in an era where we're going to see more and more people moving to cities, the future of our planet is all about cities. So we need to rewrite the operating code of our streets and make them work more efficiently, more effectively, more sustainably. And that's the really secret sauce for cities in the 21st century. You say in the book that the streets were built in a different age and that they badly serve today's residents. Mm -hmm. How so? Well, when you think about it, our streets have been in a kind of suspended animation for 60 years. And if you were in business and you didn't change your major capital asset in 50 years, you probably still wouldn't be in business. So we really need to update our streets. And so they meet the needs of people today. When you think about it, our political situations have changed, culture has changed, technology has changed, and yet our streets have remained virtually the same. Streets that used to accommodate all sorts of modes of transportation. It could be the streetcar, people walking and biking. Over the years, those choices were gradually whittled away. And so we're basically left with streets that just move cars as fast as possible from point A to point B and leave people and all the other ways to get around on the side of the road. And increasingly, you're seeing world-class cities turn the corner and change that paradigm and and move to a new road order that prioritizes people and choices for getting around. But drivers are people. 
The people who are driving the cars are people. Drivers are people too. And building more choices into your streets is not anti-car. It's pro-choice. And it's not a zero-sum game. You can build a bike lane and still make traffic move. You can build a bus lane and still make it safe for pedestrians. One of the things that we need to do is look at building strong transit networks as well. Um, when Mike Bloomberg, as mayor, launched Plan YC, which was the city's long-range sustainability program to figure out how are we going to accommodate the million more people that were expected to move to New York City by 2030 and still continue to grow and thrive and have great neighborhoods and great commercial districts. Well, we really realized we needed to change the way we allocated space on the road. And we needed to prioritize transit and economically efficient ways of getting around. So bus rapid transit networks don't need to cost a lot of money. They can be implemented very quickly and they can provide that kind of mobility spine that cities can depend on so that people have options of getting around without having to drive. Now, you're not going to wish people onto a bus that doesn't yeah. go fast or wish people onto bikes when they're ridden on dangerous streets, you really do need to have an investment strategy that puts people first. What do you mean by creative street design? What does that mean? Well, streets that are lively for people, streets that have lots of different ways of getting around built into them. If the only way to get around uh, is by car, then I think you've really limited the potential of your street and the potential of your city. And the other piece is that we've got so many people that are killed and injured on our streets every year, yeah. and yet this is taken as just a fact of life in the city. Oh, well, you live in the city, you're going to be hit or killed. And so we're all about changing the status quo. But in your tenure, you had the lowest number of fatalities in New York. That was after the work. After the work was done. Yeah. Ah, but preceding that, there were something like 700 people a Correct. year were killed. Correct. These are basic strategies that are important for the livability, quality of life, and economic development potential of your city. What's a road diet? A road diet is actually when you calm down the traffic, you you narrow the lanes. When you think about it, there's a lot of asphalt that's basically trapped between the lanes. We've designed our streets so that they are moving at highway speed rather than the speed of life. And we don't need 12-foot lanes. You can create 10-foot lanes and then grab that extra asphalt and use it to create pedestrian refuge islands. The narrower lanes make drivers more aware of what's going on, more careful. When you design a street so that it's like a jetway, the signal to the driver yeah. is like, gentlemen, prepare your engines, prepare for takeoff. Yeah. And that's what happens. You said in the book that, uh, and it's an argument that has come up many, many times, I would think in every municipal council, certainly in Toronto, that if the traffic is gridlocked in three lanes, you just build another lane. Or if it's eight lanes, you build two more lanes. That doesn't work. No, that doesn't work. You know, there's a saying that building more roads to solve congestion is like loosening your belt to deal with obesity. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work. And the punchline is, you know, more than, you know, 50 years old, yet, you know, cities still operate with the principle that a traffic cure is just one big mega project or one more lane mile away. And, and now we know we can't build our way out of congestion. And if more roads reduce congestion, then Los Angeles and Houston and Dallas and Atlanta would be moving at highway speed now instead of, you know, being stuck in a sea of brake lights. All right, bike lanes. lanes. I don't think there is anything more controversial, certainly in, in Toronto and elsewhere. You put in, what, 400, nearly 400 miles mm -hmm. of bike lanes. Mm -hmm. How the hell did you do that? <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people have uh, trouble breaking the kind of bike brain barrier, the notion that our <laughs> streets can be used for anything other than cars. 
And it's really important to build safe networks for how people can get around. It's a great transportation option. It's it's cheap. It's uh, great for the environment. It's great for the pocketbook. Um, it's great for a city. And importantly, when you put down bike lanes, you make the street safer for everyone, not just the cyclists. We found 50% decreases in injuries and fatalities along the streets where we put in protected bike lanes. You put the bike lane between the sidewalk and parked cars. It's You can really learn a lot from other cities. And I certainly you know, begged, borrowed, and stole from other cities when, when I was transportation commissioner. And one of my first trips was to Copenhagen, and I saw what nobody in American traffic management had ever done before, which was that they took the parked cars, moved them away from the curb. Parked cars served as the barrier and created They're this the bike protection. lane. Yeah. yeah, and it did these great things. First of all, it saved the parking, which as everybody knows, when you try to take away a parking space, it's like taking away somebody's firstborn child. That's right. And then you use all of that steel, those 2,000-pound cars, to provide this great protective barrier for cyclists. So it worked like a charm, and it also was really great for businesses along the way. When we created these protected bike lanes, we saw retail sales along the corridors where we put these in increase almost 50%. So it just shows you that better streets are better for business. Tell me about pedestrian plazas, pedestrian play zones, the, the emphasis on pedestrians. I guess all of us at one point or another – Everyone's a pedestrian, right? Yeah, at some point during the day, yeah. everybody's a pedestrian. Okay, so what are these plazas all about? You know, we actually do have a lot of uh, opportunity that's hidden in plain sight on our streets. And, you know, we, we think that our streets have to be used the same way all the time, when in fact there is a lot that we can do to repurpose them. So one of the um, big mandates that Mayor Bloomberg put into effect was to see how we could make sure that all New Yorkers lived within a 10-minute walk of green space or open space. And our plaza program was a big part of that. And so we actually created 60 plazas all over the city um, and prioritized big ones, small ones, big ones, small yeah. ones and, and particularly prioritized areas that did not have access to green space. He also was very strong about the fact that we needed to make sure that there were maintenance agreements for all of the plazas because in the 1980s, New York created a series of pedestrian plazas and they there was no maintenance of them and they turned into garbage pits and yeah. really undesirable yeah. spots. And so we put these maintenance agreements into place so that, you know, the local business improvement district would maintain it and take care of the tables and chairs and the plants. And in areas where there was not the economic wherewithal to be able to fund that kind of a program, we actually created a grant program and actually trained prisoners coming out of Rikers on, on greening, um, giving them a, a new uh, yeah. career path, and then used formerly homeless uh, individuals to help maintain the plazas. And so it became this very full 360-degree way to improve the quality of life for all New Yorkers. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have only had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or spending the time and money on a salon, but now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than 25 bucks. Self-image is an important thing, so it is no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has actually improved their lives. Madison 
Jason Reed delivers gray covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you've just come from the salon. Women love the results, gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair, and what makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and best of left listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's code LEFT at madison-reed.com. Welcoming to the program today, James Howard Kunstler, who's author of The Geography of Nowhere, The Long Emergency, Too Much Magic, and the four-book World Made by Hand novel series. He also has a twice-weekly blog, and podcasts can be found at Kunstler.com. So let's talk. I I want to talk about new urbanism with you, but I think maybe just to get our audience sort of into this and, and your work, what are some of the main concerns you have sort of about how at least the United States is organized geographically in terms of cities, suburbs, rural areas, et cetera. What are some of the top level things that we should be thinking about? Well, you know, I have my new theory of history, which is that things happen because they seem like a good idea at the time. Hmm. And uh, uh, suburbanizing America in the uh, mid 20th century seemed like a good idea at the time. And it's become extremely problematical, you know, the way that we are inhabiting the terrain of North America, uh, especially considering the resource problems we face and the problems with capital or, uh, let's say, wealth or, you know, our accumulated uh, uh, savings. And uh, we're facing a situation that is, you know, we're going to we're going to be short of resources, especially energy resources. And uh, the. um uh, interventions of our central banks have really um, impaired capital formation. So there's going to be a lot less money to deal with the problems we're facing. Well, some of those, so some of the sort of factors you talk about impact much more than just sort of the urban, rural, suburban landscape. I'd be interested to hear a little more if, as we can start digging in now. You know, we saw this move from the city into the creation of suburbs some decades ago. We're now starting to see and have been seeing for 10 or 15 years the resurgence of cities. And that has led to gentrification. It's led to some cities, including where we are, Boston, Massachusetts, New York, another example, San Francisco, becoming incredibly expensive. And we're now learning all of the problems that that brings as it connects to wealth inequality. So specifically, can you talk about what you see today as the sort of on the ground issues with the way in which populations are organized between cities, suburbs and rural areas? I think the main problem is that uh, the the suburbs are a living arrangement with no future. Uh, We're simply, you know, not going to have the resources to live that way. But uh, a lot of people don't realize that the way our cities are organized, too, uh, will prove to be problematical. That, Mm -hmm. in fact, they have they have grown far too big. Uh, They're they're out. They are outscaling what will be the resource realities of the future, and they're going to have to contract, and the contraction is going to be pretty disorderly. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to see a whole new disposition of uh, how people live in America, and a lot of it will include um, the resurgence of small towns, small cities, places that have a meaningful relationship with agriculture, because that's going to become a much more important issue 
as uh, you know, oil and gas-based industrial agriculture gets into trouble. Well, some uh, of the advocates of this new urbanization would say it's not so much that the cities will have to scale down, but the cities will have to build a direct relationship to agriculture, whether it's rooftop farms or vertical farming within cities, et cetera. What about that possibility that it's not a about- misunderstanding? That's a misunderstanding of how reality works. Explain that. Uh, well, you know, there is such a thing as gardening that can take place in the urban setting. But, you know, one of the unfortunate consequences of the suburban fiasco is that it erased our cultural memory of the distinction between what's the town and what's the country. And there are certain there are certain uh, activities that are specific to both. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to do the farming and the food production in the place that is not the city. And the cities are going to have to get smaller. So I, I just disagree with that whole idea. What about the future of the suburb? That's something I'm interested in as well. I mean, we've talked with other experts about how suburbs are sort of fundamentally designed to depend on vehicles, to depend on driving, to sort of stymie community creation, except sort of in the most forced and, and concocted ways just by their very layout. What about the possibility or is there a possibility of turning suburbs into small towns as independent from the cities that they surround? Well, I think that there is a wish that we could somehow uh, retrofit them. I don't think the money is going to be there to do that. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, I think that the suburbs really have three destinies, ruins, um, uh, salvage, and uh, uh, slums. And, uh, you know, not much beyond that. And uh, it's, you know, it's unfortunate. Um, life is tragic. And sometimes we have to uh, pay the consequences of making bad choices. And we've made some very bad choices in this country. You know, it's funny because there's a, a program at MIT now, which is kind of a, an offshoot of uh, the Harvard Landscape Urbanism Program. And the MIT program is putting out uh, a lot of propaganda about the future of the suburb as a nirvana of self-driving cars and, and uh, computerization. And this is the kind of techno-narcissism that I think is, is really going to get us into trouble uh, because, you know, the uh, societies are really emergent and self-organizing and they, ha they have to comply with the mandates of reality. And I think we're going to find ourselves in a, a pretty um, bad collision with reality in the years ahead. Talk a little bit about your work, new urbanism, and what you might see as sort of the prescription going forward to better organize the ways in which humans are, are organizing around cities and suburbs and small towns. Well, the new ur urbanism arose in the early 1990s as a reform movement among a group of architects, urban designers, uh, municipal officials, developers, it was a pretty broad group of professionals who uh, recognized, I think rightfully, that the American suburb was a real fiasco and that if we didn't figure out another way to live uh, on, this, on this continent, that we were going to, you know, our civilization was really going to get into trouble. And they dove into the dumpster of history and they retrieved uh, a lot of information and methodology and principle for traditional urban design. You know, most of this stuff is uh, uh, methods of, of designing and assembling places for people to live, that is a human habitat, 
that have been successful for you know centuries, if not thousands of years. And many of the basic uh, principles haven't changed. You know, the, the design and detailing of a street, the understanding that the buildings have to have to uh, form outdoor public rooms that uh, are comprehensible, that make people feel comfortable. The idea that uh, the places we live have to be um, uh, have to work with our human neurology. And, uh, you know, they set about to, to uh, you know, prove their point. They built a lot of new town developments around the United States and also in, in Europe and Asia. But I think their main contribution was uh, the, uh, the uh, recoding of municipal laws all over America uh, to avert uh, mandating the suburban sprawl out. out which uh, had been embedded in, in law and custom and building practice and really all of the relationships that uh, exist in the property development industry. Well, that really and gets so, at a question I have about this, which is, is the solution you're talking about zoning, essentially, do you see the solution as coming from the top down in that way? I mean, is there something the individual can do? Well, no, the solution is probably not going to come from the top down. I'm because that it is the nature. It's in the nature of emergence that you know that that just doesn't happen. Uh, what has happened is that as many younger people have moved into the planning profession, uh, you know they they've realized that uh, the suburban mandates are insane, and and uh, you know they've they've they have joined the new urbanist. Movement and in fact, a lot of new urbanist practice has now become, you know, normal uh, across the country. But um, uh, you know, the old habits die hard, and there are a lot of places, especially in the Midwest and the West, where you know we we're still entertaining techno narcissistic fantasies about the eternal, uh, endless suburb. So where do you live? I mean, generally speaking, not like your address, but but sort of where, where have you chosen to live and how, do, how does that fit into your views? Well, I grew up in Manhattan, by the way, you know, in the, in the center of the of uh, New York City. So yeah. uh, I've experienced that. But I'm living in a an old factory village in upstate New York, 200 miles from New York City. And, you know, it's a it's a small town that has the bones of the old economy, but a lot of the old economy is gone. But, you know, I think that these are the, are the kinds of places that will have a much uh, bigger role in America's future, because these are the place that I live in is a place that still does have a relationship with with agriculture, a meaningful one. And it also has, you know, the uh, the bones of a, a small urban place that is scaled to the realities of the future. So so I'm very optimistic about what will happen with small town America and small city America. I think uh, we ought to be very concerned about what are going to, you know, what, what will happen with the great metroplex cities, because they are, they're really going to hit the wall hard. And, uh, you know, when that happens, it's going to be a very disorderly process. I found this article this morning on the Huffington Post and, and uh, wanted to bounce it off you. It's, it's titled uh, uh, Vienna's Affordable Housing Paradise. 
And, and basically, uh, it talks about how, well, just a quote from it, uh, today, anyone earning up to $53,000 a year after taxes is eligible to apply for a subsidized apartment in Vienna. And this is a con- country where the annual uh, the median gross annual income is only 31000 So, you know, if you're earning under about twice the, the average income, you qualify for discounted housing. Um, the, the average income in the United States is in the 40s, as I recall. So this would be any, anyone earning under $80,000 would get subsidized housing in the United States. 62% of Vienna's citizens currently live in what they call social housing, compared to 1% of America's population. What does this mean? And what does it mean about how societies can be organized to create middle classes? How, how it may be that a middle class doesn't just naturally emerge. It's, in fact, in a totally laissez-faire uh, state, you would have very little middle class, you, you know, uh, that, that it has to be crafted essentially by government, sir. Well, you know, it's interesting. I have been to Vienna. I have visited friends and associates who live in the social housing uh, units that they have all over the city. Uh, you wouldn't know that you were in public housing. That is, if you come from the United States, your image of public housing is somewhere between horrible and disastrous in most cases. There are a few exceptions, but most, mostly it's very poor people, and these things are not very well maintained. So when you arrive at the social housing in Vienna, you, you don't imagine, unless someone explains it to you, that these wonderfully landscaped, spick-and-span, clean, comfortable, roomy apartments are social housing. So let's inquire. Back in the 1920s, when socialists were the government in Austria, they committed to building mass quality public housing. The logic in their minds, which Americans, I think, can understand, is that housing is as important in its way as education is. So if you're going to create a public school system, rather than letting everybody get to school if they can afford it, if you're going to have a public education system to help build your people and a middle class, etc., then you should do the same for housing. And they never looked back. That's why 60%, as you pointed out, or over 60% live in it. By the way, the average percentage paid for rent by these people is around 25, 26% of their income, which is where economists mostly think a decent uh, portion of your uh, income should go for rent, but not beyond that. And by comparison, across the United States, the percentage is much, much higher. So, yes, I think it illustrates beautifully that if you want a society of a middle class, of people who get along with each other, who can live and recreate and have some time off and lead the kind of lives that not only they prefer, but is better for all of those who come in contact with them, then you have to do the kinds of things that Vienna has done. And it has, boy, has it stood the the test of time. It's now a hundred-year-old experiment. And whether right-wing or left-wing governments have come and gone in Austria, none of them has dared touch this system because it is overwhelmingly supported by the Viennese people. Yeah, it's the, it, that's uh, pretty remarkable stuff. And yet here in the United States, we have billionaire oligarchs uh, who call themselves libertarians who 
who believe that this is socialism or worse communism, that it is antithetical to the values of the United States, or at least the values of the billionaire class. They are supported by their fellow billionaire oligarch, Rupert Murdoch, who programs a television network to, you know, with multi-million dollar stars like Sean Hannity, worth tens of millions of dollars, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars, and, and, and pitch to the average schlub, the average guy in America, the average guy and gal in America, that, hey, you know, the, the interests of the billionaires are really your interests. You want to see taxes go down on rich people. You want to see an end to public housing. You want to see an end to food stamps. You want to see an end to, to programs that, you know, like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid that, that hold the middle class together. You want to see an end to public education. Voucherize and privatize everything. And people are buying this, Professor Wolf. Yes, it, it, and, and that's why a trip, if, if you could arrange it, Tom, take Americans randomly chosen to Vienna for a week. I guarantee you they have never seen anything like... Well, well this, what is, this is what Michael visit. Moore did with his movie Where to Invade Next. I, I, that's did. right. Literally, you could maybe do it in that way with the, the wonders of the Internet and all the rest, uh, just to give people a sense I noticed that in this country, I've heard it many times, and most recently from the housing secretary, uh, Carson, that there is a deliberate effort to keep public housing looking the way it usually does and, and, and deteriorated the way it usually is in order not, in their lovely language, to let people become dependent on help from the government in the form of quality housing. The Viennese experiment, now 100 years old, testifies to the extraordinary quality of life there's a there's an award given every year in europe for the most livable city that includes london paris berlin you name it vienna wins it hands down i think nine out of the last ten years because of course if you have a mass of people who live in a beautiful home and therefore have enough money because of the low rents to maintain the coffee shops and all the other amenities that make living in a place beautiful, you have a completely different quality of life than the kind of gentrification extremes such as those we have here in New York City where, where a 10-minute subway ride can take you to the most richest neighborhood in the world and then 10 minutes later into the worst poverty you can see in the western hemisphere it's just a completely different way of understanding what collective life in a community could and should be and yet the response to that that you will get from from you know billionaire uh, murdoch and his and his fox network and and the multimillionaire uh, broadcasters on that network or from multi multimillionaire uh, rush limbaugh or these other guys is uh, well, yeah, of course you can. You're going to have everybody have decent housing, but that means that you're going to have to raise my taxes. You're going to steal money from me that I earned with the with the sweat of my brow and the intellect of my mind, and that is rightfully mine. You're talking about the redistribution of wealth. That, sir, is communism. Yeah, I know. I mean, and I can understand their hysteria. And and I would put it this way: they have to whip up whatever crazy notion they can to tap into whatever they can reach in people not to do or to make an experiment of doing what the Viennese did. And the reason they have to go to these strange lengths with these crazy arguments is that they know what Vienna proves. Once the people understood 
what you can have in the way of a modern society, nobody would ever get them to go back to what we have in this country now. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y- you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. Environmentalists are often caricatured with uh, malign political intent as being people who want to kill your jobs, take things away from you, and uh, enemies of luxury and, and you know, scolds of, of the worst sort. You write uh, at some length about uh, Vienna, public housing Vienna specifically, uh, and also the generally the, the municipal government of Red Vienna. One of the things I, I liked about the article is that you really talk about making these beautiful houses, making these beautiful public spaces. We're not talking about just some sort of you know functional basic construction. We're talking about stuff that's architecturally beautiful and uh, encourages social interaction, uh, that encourages sociability. This is not barracks. This is something uh, much more um, elevated. That's absolutely right. Right or wrong, environmentalists have been tagged often as being essentially green Austerians. But what does it actually look like if we think in the most visceral sense of what really exciting climate change politics could yield, and if we think in specific uh, terms about housing? So Red Vienna is just this incredible case of pretty left-wing politics in a city. Um, Red Vienna comes about after the First World War, of course, in Vienna. The Social Democrats win an election, and they have never lost lost a fair election since. They were beaten in a civil war by the Nazis. Um, and they've sometimes been in coalitions, but they have never been dislodged in a, in a fair election. And the Social Democratic Party in Vienna is, is interesting because the communists never leave it. So it remains a kind of solidly leftist party. So what do they do when they come to power? They get they negotiate with the, the national government to get taxing authority. They levy extremely punishing taxes on uh, luxuries from like champagne to racehorses to servants, although I'm told only the second servant was taxed. <laughs> the first one is considered kind of a necessity or something like that. Moderation. <laughs> Moderation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, you got <laughs> to keep the aristocracy from going crazy on you. And they also impose very punishing real estate taxes, which crash the land market and make it possible to buy up land. So one third of the housing um, budget for Red Vienna comes out of these luxury taxes, which is really important. Actually, it's a very clear redistributive politics. And so they fund this housing and, this fu- and the housing that is created in, in Red Vienna is just extraordinary. It's very beautiful. There are huge uh, gardens, beautiful stairways, you know, covered in glass so that the light is always pouring in. They have things like libraries, cultural centers, dental clinics, and they build this housing all over the city. And this is an explicit politics. No one should know from your zip code who you are. Anybody can, can live anywhere. And 
one could go on about Red Vienna in this really exciting moment in the in the 20s and 30s where essentially public health and feminist and labor politics all converge. The kind of the heirs of the 1848 European uprising create this fantastic city. But this is not just a historical lesson. I mean, right now in Vienna, only about one third of the housing is private market. One third is public housing built and, and operated by the city, uh, municipal agencies. And then another third is cooperative housing, which is sort of the lion's share of housing construction in the last few decades. And the cooperative housing is extraordinary. It's unbelievably beautiful. And I was down there uh, this past summer, and you have these kind of like rolling, beautifully designed gardens. You have balconies that have sort of like sliding glass doors that can you know, open or close. I mean, extreme variety of, of construction. They're often built by unions, not exclusively. They're like limited equity crop. You pay a few tens of thousands of euros to get in, but a certain number of units is reserved 10 to 20 percent in almost every one of these constructions for people who can't, can't afford to pay the lump sum. So it is... It is affordable, and, and you then have the private market, which is just one-third of the market, uh, very high quality and very cheap, because, of course, it has to compete with this very good uh, other housing. And you think about things like means testing. They have just imposed means testing. So to get into public housing now, you can't make more than roughly $100,000 a year if you're a single person. So the housing in Red Vienna is, is truly fantastic. And what I, I talk about in the Jacobin piece is that there's a really interesting legacy of this in the United States. Now, I want to note that actually the right analogy for Red Vienna in the U.S. wouldn't be uh, NYCHA and federal public housing, which I think we should defend, but is really the sort of socialist, cooperative, largely Jewish housing built, for the most part, um, in, in Queens and the Bronx, and then before that by private developers. It's a similar kind of garden apartment style. Really, really great housing. That model became public housing in Vienna, but in the U.S. it didn't quite. But there's this interesting one case, which I didn't know about until I was researching this article, the Amalgamated Dwellings, which is a Jewish socialist co-op built in the Lower East Side, built by this Hungarian architect called Roland Wonk, who came over in the 1920s. Uh, this building was built in 1931, and it's a very explicit homage to Red Vienna. It's an extremely beautiful building, kind of Art Deco building, these lovely curved doorways. It, too, had a theater with a stage in it. It, too, had a library in it. Very different from, actually, the other buildings built even by the same architectural firm, because this architect, Roland Wonk, really wanted to show an affinity to Red Vienna. And what's so amazing is that after Wonk designs this building and then this rail terminal in Cincinnati, he goes on to become the chief architect of the Tennessee Valley Authority, which built a ton of uh, hydroelectric dams all across the south of the U.S. And Wonk built the dams. He actually was hired to build workers' housing, but he said, no, show me the dam you know, architectural drawings. He said, no, actually, you should do a much more beautiful dam. And we'll set up viewing platforms and we'll sculpt approach roads so when you're coming to the dam, you see it as if it were the Acropolis as you come around the mountain. And the point of this is to sort of very, very explicitly use design to show people in the South, this power belongs to you. This is done for you. This is really your achievement. And we are just the architects of that. So he builds really beautiful workers' housing, which is racist and exclusionary as the New Deal norm. And we can't do that again. But design-wise, very interesting. The first green belt uh, in the U.S., Wonk built in, in this town next to this first dam that he built. And he was also very important in the Rural Electrification Administration, which brought um, electricity cooperatives to rural United States. I tell this kind of extended story to illustrate an idea that there is this historical precedent which says, no, housing is not a local neighborhood issue. It is an issue of national import. And there's a very clear linkage, in this case through this human being, very clear linkage between public power for public benefit um, and imagined and created by intellectuals who saw themselves as truly parts of the people and the idea of public housing, which likewise is for people so it's kind of flourished. There were balconies on the roof of this housing unit in, in Manhattan so that people could have dance parties at night. This is really a beautiful thing. And we live in common in a sort of beautiful way. So 
Yeah, I appreciate the question and the, and the chance to talk about this. It's it's really a shame that the environmental movement's most visceral idea is like a hemp t-shirt or something or a green juice. But what is really viscerally possible about a Green New Deal and about really smart climate politics more generally is just the best things the human mind can come up with to organize collective social life with a real public affluence. We really need to spread that message uh, in every way that we can. In conclusion, um, it, it seems that the best of the New Deal kind of housing you're talking about, the collective housing produced by these cooperatives, the, the public housing produced in Vienna, all of these things share a very expansive, ambitious view of the public sector um, as, as, as a glorious thing and also as a beautiful thing. An awful lot of New Deal projects are made to be beautiful as well as functional and you know, economically stimulative. We seem to have lost the capacity to think of the public sector in those terms. Everything public now means crappy, but we need to uh, get back to that old notion of, of, of a collective beauty. That's right. I mean, Robert Moses has one great contribution to New York City were the swimming pools he built during the New Deal, which are all over the city still and, and are gorgeous. If we're going to end, I think we should end on this idea that, that Wonk has. So in 1941, he writes this incredible essay about modern architecture. The war has just started. And he sort of says, listen, we live in a world of radical uncertainty. And there is just nothing to be done with that. We have to embrace the fact that we live with this world of radical uncertainty, which to me calls very explicitly to mind the kinds of uncertainties caused by climate change. And he says, we have no choice but to kind of double down, to join the struggle when the passion is hot. And he says, we have nowhere to go but forward. To me, this is a very inspiring notion. I mean, it's when you really don't know what's coming, you just have to plow ahead, constructing the kind of physically building the world that we want to live in. And there is a real opportunity to do this with the Green New Deal idea. There are innumerable opponents who want to like clip the wings of a public solution to this crisis caused by rapacious private capitalism. And again, if, if you stop focusing on the carbon numbers only or the turbines or the panels and think what viscerally in our everyday life is available, you know, what can we change? What can we make better? What are the benefits? It's huge. And housing is where we live. I mean, it is literally where we live. The stones, the bricks, the glass, the steel, all of that is the world that we're kind of encased in. And I think we have just a huge opportunity to take that material and use it to build a really beautiful world. We've just heard clips today, starting with architect Jeannie Gang's TED Talk about how we build relationships, not just cities and buildings. Ideas from the CBC spoke with Jeanette Sadek-Khan about her vision for an urban revolution. The David Pakman Show interviewed James Howard Kunstler about the disaster of suburbs and the future of livable cities. The Tom Hartman Program had on Professor Richard Wolf to discuss Vienna's alternate vision for public housing. And finally, Jacobin Radio also talked about the importance of public housing and the need to go back to creating beauty in public projects. Members this week will be hearing a bit more on this topic, including an explanation of the atrocity of golf courses and thoughts on the future of urban farming. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. Uh, this is Mark. I'm in South Carolina, in Greenville, South Carolina. 
been uh, listening to your show a long time. It's very, very good show. I mean, it's 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 led me to a lot of my news sources. So I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, comment is about your um, really poignant assessment of the uh, voters switching from Obama to Trump. Uh, I grew up here in the South, in South Carolina, lived in uh, all over the place. But one thing that remains true about this area, that in my observation, is that it's exactly like that lady said. There's just a constant, pervasive racism built into the culture. It's like a, one of the pillars of Southern culture is racism, is a, you know, the fact that, you know, black people are slaves to them and always would have remained so if not for Northern intervention. So they might like them individually, but overall, uh, as a group, they see them as um, both underlings and also as an imminent threat if they were to ever gain enough power. So I think it's a riddle that seems unsolvable, and I think you may have solved it. So good job. Uh, I think that's um, something I was kind of thinking, but you put it into words in a way that helped me understand it better, and I'm sure all your listeners can understand it better now. So, yeah, thanks for that very um, astute observation. I appreciate it. Keep it up. All right. Bye. Hi, Jay. How you doing? This is Jeff calling you from Charlotte. And this message is in reference to your episode where you're mentioning about how you could understand about the Obama supporters supporting Trump. And I want to give you a rebuttal to that. You might be onto something. Because in 2016, when I was making my preparation to move from Cleveland, Ohio, to Charlotte, North Carolina. I had to hire a guy to clean up my yard to get ready for rental. And this was in 2016, right after the RNC came to Cleveland, Ohio. And in this conversation, myself being an African American, he was dropping the N word like and if or but to me. I don't know if he didn't realize that I was African-American or he just didn't care. And in the course of this conversation, he said that he voted for Obama twice. And he never said who he was supporting for the next election, but every indication he gave sounded like he was leaning towards Trump. Just little things he was dropping conversation-wise. So again, I'm just mentioning to you that you might be on to something with your suspicion. In addition, I fought myself for not calling him out more. Instead, I called out the comical part of it that I hired him to come to my yard to clean the poop from the previous tenants that left behind. He was basically a pooper scooper. And I was laughing at that part. He was dropping the N-word all time. But thanks. I love your show. I hope everything goes well. Thank you. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. I was listening to your White Power 
episode. And I have a couple of observations for the comment which you made at the end of that episode. I believe from listening to it that your uh, your analysis, your opinion as to why many people were able to vote for Trump and Obama at the same time is in many ways correct. However, I do not believe uh, that the premise of the South loving the individual and disliking the group is not transferable to the North. Being from the North, I can tell you unequivocally that the Northerners speak more readily in the phraseology that you described from the South. White Northerners will very quickly say, you don't act black. I may not like other black people, but you are the good one. I, as a black man, have been told throughout my life, I am now in my mid-30s, that I do not act black because I read and I insist on reading. I can speak articulately and I could think before I speak. In elementary school, at the height of some of the best black intellectual programming on TV, I was not considered black because I could read and insisted on reading and discussing things when I did discuss them on a higher intellectual level. In the North, they do like the individual and hate the group similarly. To that point, and actually I will shift now and move away from that point to, well, it intermingles. There is a couple of concepts which I think you yourself would do well uh, to research, which will give you a deeper view of what you are starting to parse out. The first concept, which was brought to me a couple of years ago by a fabulous, fabulous sister, is called epigenetics. E-P-I-G-E-N-E-T-I-C-S. Epigenetics. It purports to describe, unfortunately, there is not a lot of, uh, a number of books on this. There's actually, so far as I could tell, only maybe one book available on the topic. But it purports to analyze the four predominant races on this planet from the standpoint of psychology and sociology. How does that group view other groups that it is intermingling with? From that analysis, I watched um, several lectures by the creator of the topic from that analysis this individual discovered i guess would be the best word after uh doing massive amounts of research that it seems europeans white were very um object oriented they dealt with things from the standpoint of an object 
and utilization. What you described when talking about the South, how white people describe black people are the words of an object. We raise their kids. We do work for them. We are objects. The second concept that I'd like to present to you comes from a book. And in fact, I will just recommend the book. The book is called Racism Without Racists. Racism Without Racists. It is a very interesting book, but it is also a very devastating book because it takes a look at society and says from a point not too long ago that the society is very much more racist than it admits, yet nobody is a racist. The final recommendation that I would make is, and I doubt with your workload that you'd have the opportunity to read through this, but it is still worth getting, is a massive study that was done in, I believe, the 1950s. It is available in two volumes. It is by a man named Gunnard Mardo, Mardo, M-Y-R-D-A-L. Gunnar is G-U-N-N-A-R. The title of the study or the books is The Negro Problem and Modern Democracy, an American Dilemma. This book, the study is eye-opening, is eye-opening, and will help you to see much more succinctly where your ideas are coming from, because you have the foundation of something very, very spectacular, my friend. And once you understand what you're holding, it'll help you understand the rest of the problems of this society and how they all intermingle. Please keep up the great work. I will talk to you again soon. Peace. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, quick response to uh, V on his point about the North-South dichotomy of racism. I actually completely agree with V. Um, unsurprisingly, V and I have a slightly more uh, nuanced perspective on racism than a 94-year-old woman from the South. Now, Mima Hoffman, you have to understand, you know, when Amanda would go down and visit her grandmother in Savannah, Georgia, Mima would introduce her around to her friends as my granddaughter she's a yankee and and so so you really have to understand for her everything was about the north and the south so getting back to v i agree uh, racism in the way we're describing it is not really a north south thing it's more uh, about exemplifying the people who uh, think that their racism against a group is either justified 
or unjustified. So some think that they have opinions about an entire group of people, generally black people, and they think, no, it's it's justified because I just, I'm just calling it how it is. I'm just describing how they are. And then they meet a member of that group who doesn't fit the stereotype, and they're like, well, it, that doesn't mean I'm wrong about my stereotype. It just means that you're the exception. And then there are the others who know you shouldn't have opinions about a whole group. You know, they know it intellectually, but they're still affected by a lifetime of racist propaganda that they've been subjected to. And so they can't help but have their opinions of a person, you know, a person of color they meet, uh, be impacted by all that propaganda. So so none of this is confined to either North and South. It's, it's really how a person approaches the concept of racism, either you know, the ones who think their racism is justified are the ones most likely to think that it doesn't exist. Hey, I don't hate black people because they're black. I hate them because they have a terrible culture or whatever versus the other who are like, no, 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 the, the, the group is great and racism is terrible, but it doesn't mean I'm not afraid of the guy when I you know see him coming toward me on a dark street. Like it's that sort of uh, thing. So I, I think it's the uh, it's admitting uh, uh, your racism or or having some some version of understanding of racism how we should fight against it on the group level but not being able to overcome it individually versus the other people who have like no idea what's going on they have no idea about systemic forces and they think whatever their opinion is whatever their opinion is is totally justified now, secondly, quick pivot, I have a bonus clip for you that came from a discussion we heard on today's show. Um, we heard part of a discussion between Tom Hartman and Professor Richard Wolf. I want to play just a little bit more of it, and I didn't play it in the show because I wanted to introduce it first, and I, I found it interesting because I had not heard this clip when I recorded my final comments in the previous episode. I was talking about raising the floor of society, you know, the government or society providing more basic social services so that people could go on to do more interesting things with their time and money. You know, I was saying the fact that we provide running water for people means that no one has to hike to the well or the river to get their fresh water, and they can use that time doing other things. So now society has progressed quite a long ways uh, from that invention, and so there are plenty of things that everyone sort of just needs to do that takes up time and energy just to survive in, in modern life. And so if the government or whoever did more of that, made that easier, made it cost less by uh, by publicly funding it in part, things like that, then it, it would release more time, energy, finances, and all of that to, just to do other things. And so this clip is interesting because, as I said, I, you know, I hadn't heard it before, but it turns out it's Professor Richard Wolf making basically that exact point, except applying it to a new area that hadn't been mentioned, housing. Have a listen. Well, and this is true of the, uh, you know, out of the 34 richest countries in the world, the 34 OECD nations, 33 of them, including, you know, uh, Canada on the high end of wealth and, and Costa Rica at the very bottom, have national health care systems. The only one that doesn't is the United States. And, you know, Canada, Tommy Douglas is, is, is revered in Canada the way we think of George Washington. Uh, he was the, you know, the politician who started that program 
in Canada, in uh, uh, what was it, Winnipeg, wherever it was, uh, you know, somewhere out west there, back in the '60s and and or maybe the '50s, and it's like this, you know, they're not going to go back. It's like, uh, well, I would say I would say Americans, you know, they don't want to go back on Social Security and Medicare. No, because once you get it and you understand the difference it can make in the case of Social Security, that old people have a sense they will not be a burden on their children or at least less of one than they might otherwise have been. And young people understand what a better relationship you can have with your elderly relatives if you're not crowding in on an insufficient economic basis. If you could just extend that awareness to make it clear, imagine a health service where an operation wouldn't be the great catastrophe, or a housing that gave you a nice, comfortable place that would allow you to focus on the other parts of your life rather than desperately worrying about where you'll sleep. It's a different, it's not just a different house. It's a whole different way of life in which you understand we're going to help each other be an effective community rather than accumulate as much as we can and let the chips fall where they may. I know that clip cuts off with a sort of awkward edit. Sounds like he has more to say. You just have to take my word for it. He gets interrupted at that point and the conversation takes a turn. So I just want to point out, sort of draw attention to the fact that these kinds of policies aren't an all or nothing kind of concept. Like no one's complained about my commentary in the previous episode about how we should have more public services or, or help from the government doing basic social services. Uh, but sort of to preempt a, a complaint that may come in is, is like, uh, that's how you end up down a path of the government making lots and lots of decisions for you and not really you know, giving any options of how you live or, or how you go about your life. And then you're just expected to be grateful for that. Right. And there is more space between all or nothing. And that that's what this conversation is demonstrating. It's not the government does everything. And it's not what we have in, in the U.S. in so many cases where the government does nothing and everyone is left to their own devices, it's finding a rational middle path. And Vienna's very reasonable approach to public housing is a great example of that. And it, it exemplifies, on you know, as we heard on the show, that the government can do projects well. Like, they don't have to be crappy like we imagine them to be in this country. It is a public policy choice to make public projects terrible. And it is the oldest game in the conservative playbook. So just to spell this out, because it, it was touched on in a couple of different ways, I just want to put a, you know, highlight, a uh, spotlight on it. So, you know, it goes beyond what Tom Hartman and Richard Wolff were just discussing about how policies like universal health care have to be blocked entirely, because if they were implemented, they would be so popular that we would never go back. And so people who are ideologically opposed to things like universal health care or the government being involved in something like that, or just because they own a healthcare company and don't want to be put out of business, or they're paid by healthcare companies or given campaign donations by healthcare companies, etc. You get the point. Um, but it's also that any public projects that are allowed to go forward have to be undercut 
at every turn and made to be shitty. Like, okay, look, we can't block this in, entirely, whatever the public policy is. You know, conservatives might might not want it to exist at all, but okay, fine. If it has to exist, at the very least, it has to be really bad. It has to not work very well. And it has to, you know, not fulfill its mission, uh, very well. And it, if it interacts with the public anyway, in, in any way, um, it has to do a really bad job of that. And this is how we create a perception of government work that we have in the U.S. So like there are glorious examples of government programs and public works from all over the world and even in our own history. But a consistent decades-long propaganda campaign coupled with intentionally terrible government policy implemented by ideologically anti-government conservatives and free market liberals has all but blinded us to the possibility of what good government can do if we just decide to do things right. Instead, we have the perception that because government doesn't do things well, which was a policy choice, we are led to believe that government can't do things well, and nothing could be further from the truth. If you have thoughts on this or anything else, I would love to hear it. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.